Amen. Thank you, James. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this amazing day. And Jesus, we praise you that you have died on the cross for our sins and that you've risen from the dead. And as Stephanie led us in that time of prayer, we are in the Easter Paschal season, the Passover season, where we celebrate Jesus, that you are alive. And Father, we praise you for this morning, that your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Your goodness is oh so good, because you are a good, good Father. Father, open our hearts to understand your word as we look at these two brief passages. Help us understand what you, Holy Spirit, want us to know today. Bring encouragement and conviction and strength and comfort and peace and healing all for your glory, Jesus. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen and amen. Well, welcome to the church at Woodbine. It is a joy seeing all of you this morning. Those online, I don't know, is there anybody in the balcony? Well, one or two in the balcony. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. For those who are visiting us for the first time, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, we are going through the book of Acts. And I think there's one or two of the journals of the book of Acts on the black tables right there in the back. If you don't have one, take one. And right now we're in chapter 9 and chapter 11, and we're transitioning going from the focus of Peter and the 12 apostles in Jerusalem to now focusing on Paul and how the gospel goes out through all the Roman Empire. And today's sermon topic is the church partners. That's what we're looking at today, the church partners. And we'll look at what does that mean? But before we dive into that, I have a proposal for you. If you were given the option to receive $1 million right now, it's all yours. You don't have to pay taxes on it. It's yours, a $1 million. Would you take it over me giving you one penny, and that penny doubles in value every day for 30 days. Which one would you take? One penny. Why? You see, you got a million dollars. I mean, a million dollars right there. You want one penny and it doubles in value every day? See, Nancy was a math major, I think. Because if you were to take that one penny... In 30 days, this is how much it would be. It'd be over $5 million. $5,368. You see, that penny doubles in value every day. After 10 days, you only have $5.12. After 20 days, you only have $5,242. You only got 10 days left. But that exponential growth of doubling every single day You see, if we were to stop at 27 days, you would only have $680,000 plus. But it's those last couple days where it really begins to multiply a lot. What does that have to do with the church and Jesus and discipleship? Hold on to that thought. Right here in Acts chapter 9, James, thank you so much for reading it. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Here's a little bit of the context. Last week on Resurrection Sunday, we looked at how Paul became a believer. Paul was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He loved God, the God of Israel. He loved him so much. And when he saw the Christian faith growing and exploding, he truly thought that he was serving the Lord by trying to squash and squelch it out by throwing uh, Christians in prison and forcing them to blaspheme and renounce their faith. 
And if you remember last week in chapter 9, it says that Paul was breathing murderous threats upon the Christians, throwing both men and women in prison. And on his way to Damascus, a foreign city with authority from the religious leaders of Israel to pull women and men out of the synagogues who professed and loved Jesus, to bring them back to Jerusalem, Jesus met him on that road. And Jesus knocked him down, humbled him. And Paul went into Damascus blind, fasting for three days. And an old believer, he was a new believer in the faith, but he was an old man named Ananias, came and prayed over Saul. He received his sight again. He put his faith in Jesus, was baptized and immediately began to proclaim Jesus as resurrected from the dead. And the people were amazed. And we're not going to look at this passage, but read Acts chapter 9, the whole chapter. People were amazed that the same man who is blaspheming Christians and forcing them to to deny their faith and actually murdering and throwing some in prison is now proclaiming Jesus and giving his life to Jesus and teaching about Jesus. And the people were shocked. It got so bad in Damascus that they wanted to kill Saul. And yet some of his disciples lowered him in a basket and he escaped. You see, we live in a world that hates Jesus. And Jesus has told us that. The world will hate you because they hated me first. Scripture is very clear that if we want to live a godly life, we will face persecution. We will face trials and tribulation. We don't come to Jesus to get a better life. We come to Jesus because we're desperately in need of salvation and a Savior and because he's worthy. But this world will reject us because it first rejected him. And we see that in the life of Paul or Saul. And then what happens here in chapter nine, or chapter 9 is that because of the persecution in Jerusalem, Christians scattered all throughout, they traveled all throughout Israel, up into the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean. And most of those Christians, most of them were Jewish at the time, would only share the gospel with fellow Jews. But there were some Jewish men from Cyprus and Cyrene who began to proclaim the gospel to what they would call Greeks in some of your translation, but that's Gentiles. And in a city way north, hundreds of miles north of Jerusalem, there's a city called Antioch, not Antioch, Tennessee, Antioch, in modern-day Syria, Turkey. They began to proclaim the gospel, and God began to raise up a new church in Antioch that was multi-ethnic, that was multi-socioeconomically diverse. Men and women, rich and young from the nations, were coming to know Jesus And word got back to Jerusalem where the apostles still were that God is on the move working in Antioch where it doesn't say how many, but many believed and put their faith. There were signs, there were wonders, there were miracles. Lives were being changed and transformed because of Jesus. So they sent a man up named Barnabas to see what was going on. But before they do that, right here in chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, We see this. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem after he got saved, and right here in this verse right here, verse 26, chapter 9, it had been three years since Saul had become a believer. 
He escaped from Damascus. And three years later, he comes down to Jerusalem. And it says right here that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But what does it say? But they were all afraid of him since they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, and do you remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 5? His name means son of encouragement. He was a Levite. He sold property and gave it to the apostles that they could serve the poor. It says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus and had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. You see, all of us, Saul included, who's also named Paul, and I'll confess to you, I'm going to interchange that name today. Saul is Paul. Paul is Saul. It's like many of you guys know me as Diego. My name is not Diego, but I'm called Diego in Spanish. So if you want to call me Diego, you can call me Diego. Wayne and Jill, they call me Diego. They don't call me Doug. I love it. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. Here's a man, and it's easy to throw stones at the apostles and these Christians in Jerusalem But this was the same man that stood over Stephen as they stoned him to death a couple years before. This was the same man that was throwing men and women in prison because they loved Jesus. And they had heard reports, but was he faking it? Was he trying to deceive and get into the very center of the leadership of the church to get the apostles? You see, we live in a free country where I doubt any of us here today were worried about coming to Woodbine to worship that someone was going to come in and throw us in prison. Anybody here worried about that this morning? Mm -mm. But there's numerous countries in the world today where it's illegal to love and follow Jesus. And so these church leaders were very leery of Saul. And yet Barnabas, a church leader, he wasn't an apostle, but he was a leader, a respected leader. He could see what Holy Spirit was doing in the life of Saul. He believed that God had the power to transform lives. And he brought Saul to the apostles and explained on behalf of Saul, no, no, this man here, yes, he used to persecute us. He ravaged our church three years ago, but he has seen the Lord and Jesus has spoken to him and he has proclaimed with boldness and power in Damascus what Jesus has done. Listen to him. Saul stays with him just for a couple weeks. And then in the story of Acts, he disappears for almost 10, 15 years. Gone. But see, Jesus hasn't left. Holy Spirit is still working. And as I explained a little bit ago, the church in Antioch was growing. So if you flip over to Acts chapter 11, and let's stand up again. Y'all are getting a little sleepy. I'm just teasing. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way up through Phoenicia. Who is overseeing that persecution? Saul. Connect the dots. God will sometimes take the worst of sinners and transform them for his glory. They made the way up to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks or Gentiles, depending on your translation, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, that's awesome. When you see massive revival, it's amazing when God decides to move. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Apollos plants a seed, Saul waters the seed, but it's the Lord who gives growth. It's not us. It's Holy Spirit who does that work. But we need to be faithful in making disciples, proclaiming the truth, and serving and showing the love of Jesus, and let him do the rest of the work. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22, news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. You all may be seated. The church grew in Antioch. News about that growth came down to Jerusalem. And so the apostles sent Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Well, how did Barnabas treat Saul three years earlier or 10 years earlier? He was the bridge. He was the advocate. Barnabas was the one who could see what Holy Spirit was doing in the life of Saul after he became a Christian. And Barnabas was a trusted leader to those apostles. So they sent him, no, you go up. You see, Barnabas was Jewish, but he also was an international Jew. could speak several languages and had already proven himself faithful as someone who could build bridges between cultures and people for unity and reconciliation. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch, and it says he sees the grace of God. What does that mean? Think about it. He sees the grace of God in that church. Ponder it for a second. What does that mean? How do you see God's grace in the life of others? By how they're changed? The presence and love of Jesus flowing out of their words, their actions, their attitude, transformed lives, transformed families, transformed communities, healings, both physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. How do we see God's grace? And when Barnabas saw that grace, what does it say? He was glad. He rejoiced. And then it says he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord and with devoted hearts. How did he encourage them? By teaching, preaching, encouraging. And why would he encourage them to stay true to the Lord? Because persecution and trials come. One of my dearest friends says quite regularly to non-Christians, you choose. You can have your life of trials, tribulations, and temptations with Jesus or without Jesus, but you're going to have a life of struggle. You can choose, do it on your own or do it with the Lord. God longs for you to surrender to Jesus. And it leaves people speechless when I see him talk to people this way. We will have trials. And Barnabas is encouraging these very young Christians, stay devoted in your hearts to the Lord Jesus, because there will be struggle. And then what does it say? 
and verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. What does it mean that you are a good man, a good woman? Ponder that for a moment. You are a good woman. You are a good man. Humble, integrous, devoted, faithful, bold, truthful, reliable, dependable. I think one of the greatest compliments you could ever receive is you are a good man, a good woman. Full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, full of the Holy Spirit? Paul calls us jars of clay. I call us, in my Bible version, leaky buckets. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. But because we are broken and fragile and sinful and not perfect, it's kind of like the Holy Spirit kind of leaks out of us because our own sinful, selfish flesh just gets in the way. But when we're full of the Holy Spirit, and Paul, who is Saul here, says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled and continually overly filled with Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Well, we do that by our love relationship with Jesus, reading his word, meditating on what we read, asking Holy Spirit to use his word and his presence to change our minds and our actions and our words and our thoughts and our relationships. Jesus said that a vine cannot bear fruit if it's cut off or a branch cannot bear fruit if it's cut off from the vine. And he is that vine. And we've got to be completely connected to Jesus, abiding with him every day so that Holy Spirit oozes out of us. Now, when you spell ooze, that's with four O's, sometimes five. We don't want just Holy Spirit to ooze out of us, but I mean ooze out of us. Say it, ooze. Because we're so full of spirit that Jesus is just naturally going to shine in our words and actions. That was the type of man Barnabas was. He's also full of faith. And it says here that large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And then in verse 25, and let's stand again. You know, I'm going to let y'all burn some calories today so you can have some pie at lunch today, okay? Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now remember, Saul is Paul. He brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples first were first called Christians in Antioch. You may be seated. Barnabas went up there, and he taught for a while, and he was glad what he saw, and God moved in the ministry of Barnabas. And it doesn't say how long he stayed in Antioch, but he, after a short while, he went to Tarsus, which was Saul's hometown. Years after Barnabas used, was used by God to connect Saul with the apostles, Saul and Barnabas then knows that Antioch needs someone like Saul, someone who knows the scriptures. Because remember, Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the entire Old Testament probably by memory. He was a powerful teacher and preacher, and he was bold, and Holy Spirit's hand was upon him. 
But he had spent years in the desert and years kind of in obscurity. And I believe Holy Spirit was downloading to Barnabas. It is time for that young man who met me on the road to Damascus. It is time for him to start his ministry. And he knew that the church Antioch needed someone who was a Pharisee and who was probably trilingual in several languages and who knew the scriptures and who could relate to both Jew and Gentile in this multicultural church and city of Antioch. It is time to get Saul because Barnabas couldn't do it on his own. So he goes and he gets Saul and they come back to Antioch and for a whole year, and I can't wait for next week's sermon. It is on one of my most best favorite passages, and that's horrible English. I love the church at Antioch, and I can't wait to meet these believers who lived 2,000 years ago. But Saul and Barnabas stayed for a year in Antioch, and we're going to see what God did through that church because it became a radical on-fire church, and it was not a perfect church by any stretch. But they stayed there for your teaching and preaching and leading and shepherding and making disciples. And it wasn't just them two. You see, we're commanded in Matthew chapter 28. And Matthew 28, it's the last command that Jesus gave. And if it's your last commandment, you're going to make it an important one. Now, it's not the most important commandment because the most important commandment is to love God with all that we are, all our heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. But right before Jesus went to heaven, after he rose from the dead, he told his apostles and those early disciples, 120 of them, he says, go therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now this commandment to go and make disciples of all nations, that's why we love our global workers. We can't wait to send Andre off and Kate off and Weston Tamara Banks off. It hurts to say goodbye. But there are 2.5 billion, that is B, billion people on this planet today who've never heard the name of Jesus. And Scripture is very clear that everyone who lives is a sinner and is lost. And when they die, they will go to hell unless they put their faith in Jesus. How can they do that unless they hear about him? How can they hear about Jesus unless someone tells them about it? And how can someone tell them about Jesus unless they're sent? Right, Andre? Yes. Kate is going this summer. And yet there are people here all around us who need to hear the precious love of Jesus. This commandment to go and make disciples of all nations It's not just for the pastor. It's not for the deacons. It's not just for the worship leader or the children's minister or the small group leader. Every person who loves Jesus is commanded to make disciples. So my question for you and for me is this. It's twofold. This is the first question. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? For some of us, it's our wee littles. We have little toddlers, and that's our number one priority. For others of us, it might be little toddlers plus some teenagers who might be stinky and hairy and sweaty. It could be our roommate. It could be students in our classroom. It could be coworkers or our neighbor. 
It could be our supervisor or our boss. It could be a friend from high school or college or maybe a new friend we just met. All of us are commanded to make disciples. It's to pray for them, spend time with them, love them, encourage them, help them grow in their walk with Jesus. There are formal ways we can do it and very informal ways we can do it. It can be done one-on-one or in a small group. It can be done just very informally, inviting people out for coffee or over to the house. Guys like to do stuff together. It can be done while doing yard work or playing golf or going to top golf if you got the money to do that. It could just be done hanging out on the front porch in the backyard at a coffee shop or even McDonald's if you're from the South. That's McDonald's. It's reading scripture together, praying together. Do you know that there are 59 one another commandments in scripture? 59 of them. Here's some of them. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another is said like seven times. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy hug. Holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Carry one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Bless one another. And on and on and on. So my question for me and you is, who are you discipling? We have just started a partnership with Young Life. And two Mondays ago, or three Mondays ago, one of the high school kids from Gleecliff came up to me and he said, are you the pastor here? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, can I get baptized in your church? He's like, you bet you can. Well, first we got to talk about it. And it's been awesome to watch some of the relationships that we are starting to have with these high school kids at Glencliff and some of the Young Life leaders. And hopefully in the Sunday, one of these Sundays coming up, we're going to be able to baptize this young man. We didn't do anything, but these Young Life leaders are pouring into these high school kids, loving on them. Who are you discipling? The other question is this, and it's very similar. Who is discipling you? We all need someone above us to be pouring into our lives. And then we turn around and pour our lives into them. Barnabas was discipling Saul. Saul, and we'll see as we pass through the book of Acts, discipled many in Antioch. So who are you discipling? Who is discipling you? The money question You guys are smart. If you were to take a million dollars right now or one penny that would double in value every day for 30 days, I don't know if any of you guys said, I'll take the million. What was the answer? Well, if you took a penny that doubled in value every day, it's 5,600,000 and something thousand. Let's imagine there's almost, or there's a little over 8 billion people that live on this planet today. It's 8,045,311,488, give or take a few every second. 
Let's pretend that there's one Christian living on this earth. Just one. And that Christian who loves Jesus with all her heart makes one disciple in one year. So after one year, there are two. And those two Christians who love Jesus with all their heart each make a disciple of Jesus that second year. So at the end of that second year, there are how many? Four. Oh, they learned you good in school. Good. Those four Christians then each make a disciple of Jesus that third year. So after three years, how many are there? Eight. That fourth year, there are then, after that fourth year, there are then 16. How many years would it take to reach 8,045,311,488? Now, don't don't pull out that phone. 30 and a half years. 30 and a half years. Jesus was only on earth for 33. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. We are all commanded to make disciples, and we can't do it on our own. Bless you. We can't even live the Christian life on our own. We need one another because there are seasons in our life when we're the cripple and the stretcher and we need the friends to lift us up and carry us to Jesus. But there's also times in our life when we are called to lift others up and help carry their burdens. There's a dying world that does not know Jesus and they most desperately do. And it's not the pastor's responsibility to go out and save the world. That's Holy Spirit's job, to bring conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment that he's chosen to use you, the church, to be salt and light where you work, where you live, where you play, and where you worship. I want to invite you to stand. And as we sing this song in response of worship, I really want to encourage you to really listen to Holy Spirit if there's something he's calling you to be or a next step you should take, there'll be a couple of us over here. We would love to pray with you. If you are carrying a burden or maybe you have a friend that you're trying to share the love of Jesus to and it just seems like there's a resistance or maybe you're just carrying something you need prayer. This is all about the one another's now as we worship him and as we pray for each other. So let's worship.